Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. When someone asks you for evidence as to why God exists, what do you say? Well, today I want to talk about that. I think there's an easy way to show that God exists, and it comes from a principle, a philosophical principle, used by scientists. When scientists are trying to discover what they are trying to discover, they use this principle all the time. You can't do science without it. And what is that principle? It is the principle of the law of causality, that every effect must have a cause. Every effect must have a cause. You cannot do science without that particular philosophical principle. Because when you're doing science, you're trying to discover what particular effect has, or when you have an effect, what particular cause caused this particular effect. That's what science is, loosely defined, is a search for causes. You have an effect, you're trying to reason back to a cause. And so when people ask me, how do you know that God exists? My answer is, is that we know God by his effects. We know God by his effects. We don't, we don't detect God directly. We might say that we might have a revelation. I'm not talking about personal revelations here. I'm talking about how you can observe God or observe the effects of God by looking around you, by looking out at the external world. How can you do that? Well, it turns out that there are a number of effects that God has left behind that should cause us to reason back to a creator. The most obvious effect he's left behind is the universe itself, that the universe had a beginning. The universe is an effect of God. You say, well, how do you know it's God? Well, even atheists are admitting today, as you probably well know, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, that the universe had a beginning that space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing. Atheists admit this. Even Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist who just died about three or four years ago, uh, he said almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang, that there was a beginning to the space-time continuum. Well, that's an effect. The universe is an effect. The space-time continuum is an effect. The question is what caused that effect? It seems to me that if space, matter, and time had a beginning, or space, time, and matter, to be more correct, then whatever caused space, time, and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter. In other words, the cause must transcend space, time, and matter. A number of years ago, I had an uh, event, I think it was at Oakland University in Michigan, not far from Detroit, and an atheist got up to the microphone during the Q&A, he said he was once a Christian. He said his name was John, but he says, I'm an atheist now. And I had just given evidence that the universe had a beginning. This is known as the cosmological argument, that every effect has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. 
the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. And he got up to the microphone and he said, well, if you give science more time, one day we're going to find a natural cause for the creation of the universe. And I said, John, we're never going to find a natural cause for a creation of the universe. He said, oh, yes, we will. We're, just give science more time. And I said, John, first of all, that sounds a lot like faith. In other words, we don't have a cause for this yet, but given enough time, we will find it. That's a faith position. And he said, no, really, if you give it more time, you'll find it. And I said, John, you're never going to find a natural cause for all of nature. If nature itself was created, as the evidence seems to show, then nature can't be the cause because nature is the effect. It can't be the cause. In fact, if you saying that if you just give science more time, we're going to figure out a natural cause for all of nature, it would be like me saying, if you give me more time, one day I'm going to figure out that I gave birth to my own mother. No, that's impossible in principle. My mother must precede me. And the cause of the universe must precede the universe. The cause actually can't be made of space, time, and matter if indeed space, time, and matter had a beginning. And that's what the evidence shows. Not just from science, but from philosophy. How do we know the universe had a beginning from philosophy? This is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. It was actually formulated originally by a Muslim philosopher who said you can't go on an, an, an infinite regress of days. In other words, there can't be an infinite number of days before today. If there were an infinite number of days before today, then this day, today, never would have gotten here. Why not? Because you'd always have to live another day before you got to this day. Why? Because there's an infinite number of days before today, if you're going to say the universe is eternal. But there's... There can't be an infinite number of days before today because this day has arrived. That means there can only be a finite number of days before today. I know this can give you intellectual constipation if you try and think about it long enough, but that's because it's a hard concept to get our minds around and infinite anything is a hard concept to get our minds around, but you can't have an infinite number of finite things. You can't have an infinite number of days, an infinite number of marbles, an infinite number of seconds, an infinite number of Earths, an infinite number of universes. They can only be finite because they're limited. No matter how many of them you have, you don't have an infinite number. You can't have an infinite number of days. So there, if there's only a finite number of days before today, then the universe had a beginning. Time had a beginning. If time had a beginning, whatever created time can't be inside of time, must be outside of time. In other words, the cause must be timeless. And this is one way, by the way, to answer the who made God objection because their atheists are going to say, well, if you're going to say that everything has a cause, first of all, we're not saying everything has a cause. We're saying everything that comes to be has a cause. But they mischaracterize it and say that you're saying everything has a cause. No, I'm saying everything that comes to be has a cause. And they'll say, well, why doesn't God need a cause? Because he didn't come to be. He's outside of space. He's outside of matter. He's outside of time. He created all those things. So he is immaterial, spaceless, and timeless. And if you're timeless, do you have a beginning? No. Do you need a cause? No. You're timeless. You didn't have a beginning. You are the unmoved mover, as Aristotle would call it. You are the uncreated creator. You are the great I am. The being that had no beginning, the being that will have no end. That's what the Bible calls God. That's what God calls himself. He says, I am the great I am. <laughs> In fact, Jesus used that term about himself in John chapter 8. 
He said, before Abraham was born, I am. And they immediately picked up stones to stone him. Why? Who is he claiming to be? Well, he's claiming to be Yahweh because he's quoting from Isaiah, not Isaiah, he's quoting from Exodus 3.14. What's Exodus 3.14? The burning bush. You remember when God appeared to Charlton Heston in the burning bush and said, Moses says to him, who should I say that you are? In other words, who should I tell the Israelites you are? This God speaking from the burning bush. And God says, tell them I am send you. What does I am mean? I am means the self-existent eternal one. The being that had no beginning, the being that will have no end, the being that just bees. Jesus was claiming to be him. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. So people who, claim, who say Jesus never claimed to be God haven't read John chapter 8. And the people standing there hearing him say that said, he's claiming to be God. Let's stone him. That's blasphemy. In any event, whatever created the universe is timeless. If it, if it is indeed true that space, time, and matter had a beginning, and all the evidence points to that, all the evidence from science that we know about, all the evidence from philosophy points to an absolute beginning to the space-time continuum. In other words, this universe is an effect. So we reason back to a cause known as a spaceless, timeless, immaterial first cause. And there are more attributes to this first cause from this one argument, the cosmological argument that I'll get to right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. By the way, I'm going to be in Bradenton, Florida this weekend, uh, both Sunday services at Bayside Church, then a Sunday night service, then a Monday youth conference. Check all the details on our website, crossexamined.org, back in two. How can we discover God by his effects? That's what we're doing when we look at something like the cosmological argument, which says that the universe had a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. I just mentioned I'll be in Bradenton, Florida at Bayside Church this Sunday, August 1st for both services in the morning and then a service at night, a collective group there at night. All the details are on our website. Then there's a youth uh, a youth conference going on right after that. The next few days, I'll be speaking on Monday night there. And then on Wednesday night, I'll be uh, back at Grace Community Church in Sarasota, Florida for a skeptics night. Come and ask any question you want on Wednesday night, uh, August 4th. And uh, then the following week, CIA. We're going to be out in Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills for the what is this, the 14th annual CIA? Something like that. It's amazing how long we've been doing this. It's closed up now, so you can't be a part of it, but look us up for next year. The Cross-Exam Instructor Academy. If you really want to learn how to do apologetics and answer questions well, that's the place to go. We're talking about how do we know that God exists and how can you show others that God exists? And I think the easiest way to do it is to say to people, God has left effects behind that allow us to reason back that he exists because he is the cause of these effects. Another way to say that God exists is to say that God is the best explanation of the way things really are, the best explanation of reality. And one of the ways things really are is that the universe was created out of nothing. No space, matter, or time. The entire universe came into existence. And just before the break, we were talking about if that's really true, the cause 
can't be made of space, time, and matter because space, time, and matter was created. So the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, also personal. Why personal? Because to choose to create something is necessary to go from nothingness to a state of creation. And only persons can make choices. Impersonal forces don't make choices. Gravity, for example, doesn't decide to do things. Gravity just does what it does over and over again. And by the way, gravity was created with the universe. So it didn't pre-exist the universe. So even if it did pre- or even if it was possible to pre-exist the universe, gravity could not create something. It doesn't cause things. Uh, it, it doesn't go from non-existence to existence. You need a person to make a choice to do that. Also, obviously, the being would have to have a mind in order to be a person to make a choice. To make a choice, you got to have a mind. The being, so the being's intelligent. The cause is intelligent. The cause would also have to be powerful to create the universe out of nothing. So I always ask audiences, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? God. Yeah, well, how do you know it's the Christian God, though, Frank? I don't know if it's the Christian God yet. I haven't done enough research yet. This one argument, the cosmological argument, gets you to a being that could be the Christian God. It could also be Allah or some other theistic or deistic God. In order for me to know that the creator of the universe is the Christian God, we have to look at historical evidence regarding Jesus. And when we do, I think we'll realize that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,988 years ago is the same being in whose divine nature created the universe out of nothing. So it turns out to be the Christian God who created the universe out of nothing. So one effect is the universe itself. Another effect is the fine-tuning of the universe which is best explained by design. What do we mean by the fine-tuning of the universe? Not only did the universe explode into being out of nothing, it did so with extreme precision. Uh, Stephen Hawking, again, an atheist physicist, said that the expansion rate of the universe, if it were different, by one part in a thousand million million, a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. In other words, if you were to... If you were to Easy for me to say. If you were to exchange or change the expansion rate of the universe virtually imperceptibly from the very beginning, we wouldn't be here. The universe would have collapsed back on itself or expanded in such a way that it never developed galaxies. And of course, therefore, we wouldn't be here. The universe is balanced on a razor's edge. And it was balanced on a razor's edge from the very beginning. And that's just one of several probably about a dozen constants about our universe or factors about our universe, that if you were to change any one of them, we'd, we'd have no universe or certainly no universe that could support life. Now, what best explains the fine-tuning of the universe, particularly the initial conditions? This is one of the initial conditions of the universe. You can't say that this just happened by chance. Why? Because chance is not a cause. Chance is a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. Chance actually doesn't do anything. When scientists use the word chance, what they really mean is that we don't know. We don't know what caused the universe. And if you hear my dog barking, that's because somebody just came to the door. But anyway, uh, chance, what are the chances the dog would bark during the podcast? I don't know. It just happened. I know that the person that just rang the doorbell, it wasn't chance. It was somebody that actually rang the doorbell. 
Somebody actually, there's a cause out there. I don't know who it is because I can't see it, but somebody hit the door, hit the doorbell. It didn't just happen without a cause. In any event, chance doesn't cause a thing. Only a person could cause something like a design, as we see in the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe, particularly what we're talking about now are the initial conditions of the universe. It appears to be designed. Look, it either was designed or it wasn't. What makes more sense? That it was designed. You don't, you don't get this extreme precision without design. And by the way, you can't say that the reason that the expansion rate is precisely what it is is because it evolved to this point just by chance. Why? Well, because it, it didn't evolve anywhere. It started there. Remember what Hawking just said. He said, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by a thousand million million, a second after the Big Bang, there's no time to evolve. This is how it started. We wouldn't be here. So it seems to me the same being that created space, time, and matter out of nothing is the same being that fine-tuned the expansion rate to be precisely what it needed to be so we could exist here. Now, most atheists will admit this is a very difficult argument to deal with if you're an atheist. In fact, Christopher Hitchens, who, as you know, I had the opportunity to debate a couple of times many years ago, said this was the hardest, hardest, hardest argument to answer when it came to dealing with the arguments for God. An effect of God is the fine-tuning of the universe. Another effect of God is the design we find in life, particularly the genetic code or the genome. And to illustrate this, let's suppose you're a teenager, you come downstairs to have a bowl of alphabet cereal, and you see the alphabet cereal is knocked over on the kitchen table, and the letters spell, take out the garbage, mom. What are you going to assume? The cat knocked the box over? Earthquake shook the house? No, you're going to say that that's intelligent design from an intelligent being, mom. Why? Because you know that messages, even short messages, like take out the garbage mom, don't happen by chance or by natural laws. Natural laws don't create messages like that. You know that a message like that can only be the result of a mind. Now, if that is the result of a mind, take out the garbage mom, what must be 8 or 3.2 billion letters long of a message be caused by because that's what's in every one of your cells every one of your 40 or so trillion cells has a message 3.2 billion letters long all the letters are in the right order save a mutation here or two here or there they're all in the right order how did that happen if natural laws don't give you take out the garbage mom how are natural laws going to give every human being it's, it's, it's unique DNA, unless you're an identical twin. How, how does that happen? How, how do natural laws come together and get you this genome? In fact, every critic of intelligent design could shut up every proponent of intelligent design when it comes to the genome by simply answering one question. What natural laws, or better stated, what natural forces can bring forth specified complexity, can bring forth a message. 
There are no known natural forces that can bring forth, take out the garbage mom, much less a message 3.2 billion letters long. Oh, Frank, this is a God of the gaps argument. No, it's not a God of the gaps argument. What's a God of the gap argument or God of the gaps argument? That's when you have a gap in your knowledge and you can't find a natural cause for it. And so you plug God into the gap of your knowledge and you say, God must have done it. Now, this is a legitimate objection sometimes. Sometimes it's right to say it's a God of the gaps argument. For example, maybe in ancient times, people thought, thunder and lightning? The gods must be mad at us. Now, in modern times, we've discovered there are natural causes for this. And so we don't have to posit that God is directly causing thunder and lightning. So we plugged God illegitimately into the gap in our knowledge. And now later we go, you know, it really wasn't God. We can explain that naturally. But there are some things that you can't explain naturally. When you see take out the garbage mom, it's not just that you lack a natural explanation. It's that you have positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent explanation. Yes, obviously you lack a natural explanation for that, but you also have positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent cause because you know in all your prior experience that messages only come from minds. They don't come from natural forces. They only come from minds. When Napoleon and his uh, crew discovered the Rosetta Stone somewhere, I believe in Egypt, in the early 1800s, and they saw those three different languages on the Rosetta Stone, Greek, Demotic script, and I believe it was hieroglyphics. And that, that, was, that was the key to actually deciphering hieroglyphics. When they saw that, they immediately said, ah, somebody must have inscribed this. That was not a God of the gaps argument. They didn't go, let's, we don't have a natural cause, but let's wait. Maybe we'll find a natural cause for these three languages. No, 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 no. They immediately knew that that's positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent cause. And that's all what intelligent design theorists are doing. When they find a genome that's 3.2 billion letters long, they go, we don't know any natural cause that can do this. Not only that, it's positive evidence for an intelligent being, whoever that intelligent being is. You know, biology itself doesn't tell you whether the intelligent being is God or what kind of God. It's simply saying there's got to be an intelligence out there that put this together. So the effect known as the genome, your DNA, appears to have a cause. And that cause seems to be intelligent based on the very data itself. It's not a God of the gaps argument. In fact, if you're going to say we're going to find a natural cause, then I might say that's a natural law of the gaps argument. You're, you're avoiding the obvious conclusion. You have faith a natural law is going to do this, and we've never found it. And contrary to that, well, I'll complete this after the break. Don't go anywhere. Some of what we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen, is from my book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. We're talking about how we can know God by his effects. We talked about the effects that we see from nature, the effect known as the universe itself, the effect known as the fine-tuning of the universe, the effect known as the genome the software code in every living thing. In fact, Bill Gates has even admitted, he said human DNA is like a software program, but it's far, far more complex than anything human beings have ever created. Well, look, if Microsoft Word requires an intelligence to create it, 
What about a software program far, far more complex than even Microsoft Word? Your genome. That requires an intelligent being as well. Whoever that intelligent being is, it still requires an intelligent being, even if you don't have all the details of who the intelligent being is. So that's what we're doing. We're reasoning from effect back to cause to say that God exists. And we don't get all the attributes of this being from any one argument. From the cosmological argument, we can get that this being is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent. Well, sorry, not moral. We get that from the moral argument. We get spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. From the design argument that we're making here, we also get another way of showing this being is intelligent and has purpose. And we get to the moral argument, we'll get to here in a minute, we can see that this being is moral as well. So this is how we can discover that God exists, reasoning from effect to cause, which is what scientists do. Now, I mentioned the book Stealing from God, where we actually are starting a course, a live course on the, on the book Stealing from God, and it's starting this week. If you want to be a part of it and you want to join our live Zoom sessions, I think our first Zoom sessions this Tuesday night, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, August 3rd. You want to be a part of all that, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. You'll be live on Zoom on eight occasions with me. We'll learn from one another. We'll review some of the material from the course. We'll do a lot of Q&A on those Zoom sessions. Uh, so just check that out. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. And then there's another fun course coming up a couple of weeks after that called Why Can't You Be Normal Just Like Me? It's a short mini course. It's about personality differences. No, it's not Enneagram, whatever that is. I don't even know what that is. People have been down on that. I, I don't even know much about it. This is something I used to use years ago in business and even with churches called DISC. I think it's pretty quite obvious that God has, has wired us in certain ways personality-wise. And by knowing this, you can not only improve your relationships with your family, but you can also improve your ability to evangelize. And that's what we talk about in this mini course. So check all that out there at crossexamine.com. Org, click on online courses. Okay, what other effects can we look at to say that God exists? Well, I just mentioned the moral argument. We've talked about the moral argument quite a bit here, uh, as you know, on this program, so I won't belabor the point. But the point here is, is that we all have this intuitive sense that certain things are right and other things are wrong. Everybody understands that, say, torturing babies for fun is wrong. Everybody understands that murder is wrong. Everybody understands that rape is wrong. Doesn't mean they can't talk themselves out of those positions. It doesn't mean that they, uh, they don't sometimes murder or sometimes rape or do some of these things. But deep down in their hearts, they know in conscience that those activities are wrong and that love is right. If that's the case, there must be an external standard beyond us that we're obligated to obey and that external standard, that external moral standard we call the good is what we mean by God's nature. If God doesn't exist, then there are no rights or wrongs. There's no right or wrong way to live. Things just happen. We're just molecules in motion, drifting through a meaningless universe that will have no, no positive end. We're all just going to become worm food. So nothing ultimately matters, which means nothing is ultimately good or bad. Nothing is ultimately... Uh, right or wrong, everything is just a matter of preference. Now, in our hearts, we know that's not the case. We know that we live meaningful lives, 
that there are right ways to live and wrong ways to live. And even people who are atheists claim that there are right ways to live. They claim they have certain rights, particularly in the past several years, there have been people claiming they have rights to transgenderism and rights to same-sex marriage and several other things. Do you know if there is no God, there are no rights to anything? Not only is there no right to same-sex marriage, there's no right to natural marriage. Not only is there no right to an abortion, there's no right to life if God doesn't exist. Everything is merely a matter of personal preference without God. And you can't live that way. And you know that that's not the case, that there are no rights and wrongs. There are rights and wrongs. Everybody has something that they think is right. Everybody believes in injustice. If you believe in injustice, you must believe in justice. If you think something's immoral, then you must believe that something is moral. If you think something's not right, then you must believe something is right. The question is, what grounds that right? If it's just your opinion, it's not really a right, it's just a preference. So we're reasoning from the effect known as the moral law. And Paul says, this is written on our hearts. Of course, Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's echoing basically what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, that it's written on our hearts that these rights come from God. They don't come from government. In fact, the next line in the Declaration of Independence says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Government doesn't give you your right, your rights. Government doesn't well, it's not supposed to take away your rights. Sometimes it does. Governments are just put in place to secure rights. That's the, the purpose of government is to prevent evil people from preying on innocent people. It's to protect innocent people from evil. That's why governments exist to begin with. As James Madison famously said in Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Yeah, you wouldn't need a government if men were angels, if we always did the right thing. You only need government to suppress evil, to ensure that innocent people don't get hurt. That's why you have government. But I digress. The effect known as objective morality must have a cause. Laws come from lawgivers. There's a law that says love and do not murder. Well, that law must come from outside ourselves. That effect that we understand intuitively must come from a source outside of ourselves. That's what we mean by God. That God is the source of goodness and he's the source of our moral obligations. If there's no God, who are you obligated to? What if Hitler comes along and says, no, your obligations are no longer to love the Jews, your obligations are to murder the Jews. Why is he wrong if there's no God? Because you said he was wrong? No, there's a standard beyond him. That's how we, by the way, that's, as you know, that's how we, that's how we prosecuted the Nazis at Nuremberg after World War II. The Nazis said, oh, we're just following our government. And we said, no, you had a moral obligation to disobey your immoral government because there's a standard beyond your government. It's called international law. C.S. Lewis called it the moral law. Thomas Jefferson called it nature's law. Paul called it the law written on the heart. It comes from the same source, God. But that's the way you can adjudicate between governments. That's how we knew the allies were closer to the truth than were the Nazis. And that's why the allies could prosecute the Nazis in the Nuremberg trials. So from these three effects, 
the universe itself, the design of the universe and the design of life, and the moral law, we can draw these conclusions about the cause of these effects. The cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent, moral. Now these are the God or these are the attributes of the God of the Bible and we haven't even opened the Bible yet. In other words, we're discovering the attributes of God by what is called natural theology. Because as you know, God has written two books. Yes, he's written the Bible through men, but he's also written the book of nature. And we can know about God from nature, just from how we've been reasoning here. In fact, Paul even says this directly in Romans chapter 1. He says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been Made, so they are without excuse. Being understood from what has been made. What has been made? The universe has been made. It's been created and fine-tuned. Life has been made. It's been created and designed with incredible complexity. Not only in the genome, but in the inner workings of life. What else is, has been made? Our own consciousness. Our conscience has been made. Your conscience, my conscience has been made. And we reason back from these effects to the cause known as God. So when someone says, how do you know that God exists? I say, I reason from effect back to cause. God has left effects behind. And there are other effects that I think point back to God. The effect known as reason, the ability that we have to reason, the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics. Why can the universe be so precisely defined by the laws of mathematics or by mathematics? It's as if this universe is set up by a mind. Yes, indeed, that is the case. Set by a mind. It's on a mathematical grid, the universe is. Eugene Wigner, back in 1961, the year I was born, actually wrote a paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. What was he getting at? He couldn't figure out why it was so that our three-pound brains could use mathematics to measure and quantify things outside of our three-pound brain, namely the universe and reality around us. Why is mathematics so unreasonably effective? And he gave no answer because he wasn't a theist. <laughs> but theism, the idea that God exists, is a better explanation for why things are so orderly mathematically and can be measured mathematically than is atheism. In fact, as you know, in my view, atheism, materialistic atheism, can't explain reason itself, much less mathematics. And C.S. Lewis put that so well, as you know. He said, suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought, so I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Boom. That's all you can say when C.S. Lewis says something is boom. He nailed it. 
Yeah, if you can't trust your own mind, how can you even trust arguments leading to atheism or anything else? You can't. Why should you trust your own mind if you're just a molecular machine, if you're just a moist robot? You shouldn't, but you can trust your mind, which should cause you to say, my mind is an effect of the great mind. That's why I can understand reality. More on this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek, our website, crossexamine.org. So is our YouTube channel. Check it out. Back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Hey, if you would, go to wherever you listen to podcasts and put a positive review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast, if you will. It will help us move up the charts which will mean more people will hear it. So thanks very much for doing that. We're talking about today how we know that God exists, and we're saying we're reasoning from effect back to cause. That's what scientists do. And uh, I want to point out a few more of these philosophical presuppositions that you need to assume in order to do science. We've been talking about the law of causality. You cannot do science if... There's no law of causality, because when you're doing science, you're trying to discover what particular cause caused a particular effect you're observing. And uh, some will say, oh, the law of causality is questionable at the quantum level. Well, it might be, but actually, we don't really know what's going on at the quantum level. The great atheistic or atheist physicist Richard Feynman, who was a quantum physicist himself, said, if it says, if anyone tells you they know for sure what's going on at the quantum level, they don't. OK, so it's a mystery. The quantum level is the is is smaller than subatomic particles. And what some will say is at the quantum level, it appears that particles are popping in and, out of, in and out of existence without a cause. Well, that might be the case, but it also might be the case that our very process of observing the quantum level may be causing the unpredictable things that we see at the quantum level. Because when you put a photon of light off a particle that may be smaller than a photon, you might actually be causing... The, the unpredictable movements that you see. In fact, you may have heard Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which basically says you can't predict the simultaneous location and speed of a subatomic particle. But that only is the uncertainty principle about predictability, not about uncausality. We haven't established that particles aren't being caused. What we're unable to do is predict where they're going to be when we observe them. But as I just mentioned, it might be that our very process of observing them is causing their unpredictable movements. Just like when you stick your head in a beehive, you're wondering why the bees are buzzing around. It's because you put your head in there. That's why you're causing the phenomenon. And look, the law of causality applies everywhere else. The benefit of the doubt has to go to the law of causality when it even comes to the quantum level. And if you're doing observations of the quantum level and you're saying, well, I don't think there's a cause going on out there, you're actually using the law of causality to try and make these observations and draw valid conclusions about the quantum level. Not only that, the quantum level itself needs a cause. It's not nothing, as some have said, like Lawrence Krauss has tried to define the quantum level as nothing. But even he eventually admits it's not nothing. It's still something. It's still a bubbling brew of energy in the quantum level. It's not non-being. That's what we mean by nothing. When we mean the universe came into existence out of nothing, we don't mean the quantum vacuum. We mean non-being. Something that it's not something at all. It's nothing. For example, if I say I, I had nothing for lunch today, it means that I didn't eat lunch. It doesn't mean that I got a plate of nothing and ate it. It means non-being. It's not, it's not referring to anything. 
Nothing is 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 a reference to nothing. To, 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 I can't even I can't even describe it without using the word. It's not a reference to anything. Nothing exists. There was non-being. The only thing that existed was the cause, and the cause appears to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. And moral, if you throw in the moral argument there. Now, the law of causality, if, if, if you say the law of causality doesn't apply, you might as well give up on all science, because that's what science is built on, the law of causality. What are some other things that science is built on philosophically? And in fact, you can't do science without philosophy. In the book, Stealing from God, we have a chapter on science. The title of the chapter is Science Doesn't Say Anything Scientists Do. Why do I say that? Because all data needs to be gathered. All data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Science doesn't do that. Scientists do that. And sometimes a scientist's preconceived philosophical commitment will cause them to interpret the data in such a way as they interpret it wrongly. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, some scientists are atheists. And so when they look at, say, data for the uh, first life or for, for subsequent life forms, they may say, no matter how much the evidence points towards an intelligent cause for this effect, they're going to say, since we don't believe in intelligent causes, atheism is true, it can only be a natural cause. Well, that's not the result of the evidence. That's a result of their philosophical presupposition. They're putting rose-colored glasses on and wondering why everything looks rose-colored. They're avoiding the other two, or the other, I should say, the other possible explanation. Yeah, maybe it's a natural cause, but it could also be an intelligent cause. And when you rule out one of those two illegitimately, or before you even look at the evidence, is it any wonder you always come up with a natural cause? So... Scientists are actually the people saying things. When you see, and this is so prevalent now with COVID, let's follow the science. You ever, you ever wonder why you're getting such conflicting data on COVID? Why? Because science doesn't say a word. It's scientists that say things. And some of them have political agendas, as you know, or other agendas. Why? Because they're human beings like the rest of us. And so they're going to say things based on their political agenda or based on their philosophical presupposition, whereas some scientist on the other side of the political aisle may say something different. That's why it's so hard to discover sometimes what the real truth is. Because science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. So, in addition to the law of causality, you have orderly natural laws. You have to assume that the laws are orderly. Well, they are orderly in order to do science. I mean, if, the, if natural laws changed every 10 minutes, and by the, way, by the way, there's only four known natural forces. The law of gravity, the strong and weak nuclear forces, and electromagnetism, light. Those are the four known natural forces. First question, what combination of those four known natural forces can bring forth life? None that we know of. What combination of those four known natural forces can bring forth the specified complexity found in the human and other genomes? None that we know of. And as I say, atheists could shut up any intelligent design theorist if they could come up with how natural laws, which do things the same thing over and over again, could create this unique specified complexity we find in living things. But orderly natural laws, you have to assume you can't prove those by science. You need those in order to do science. And why is the universe so orderly? 
Why do all things in the universe change? Like me and you, we change. I'm getting older, you're getting older. We break down. We change. But, but how come the laws that, that govern the universe don't change? Why are they so orderly, precise, and consistent? Seems to me they're a product of a mind. Why is nature going in a direction? Why do acorns always go in the direction of becoming oak trees? Why don't they become an elm tree, a birch tree, or a seahorse? Why? Because they're programmed to become oak trees. Well, who programmed them? And, and by the way, is, is an acorn conscious, conscious? Is an acorn in the ground thinking, all right, what do I have to do to become an oak tree? No, but it reliably goes in the direction of becoming an oak tree. If it doesn't have a mind of its own, and it doesn't, there must be an external mind directing it toward an end. That's what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. Thomas Aquinas came along in the 1200s AD and he said, this is going to be my fifth way to argue for God. That nature's going in a direction. If it's going in a direction, it must have a director. My words, not his. That it's going in a direction. Natural laws are going in a direction. Living things that don't even have minds are going in a direction. Why? Because they're propelled in that direction by a mind. Now, this is not talking about a big bang cause. In fact, some people think when Aristotle's talking about the unmoved mover, he's talking about a big banger. No, no, no. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about a cause way back in time that brought time into existence in the rest of the space-time continuum. He's talking about a present cause right now, every second the universe exists. And that's what Thomas Aquinas is talking about in his fifth way to argue for God. It's a present cause, a sustaining cause. The kind of cause Paul talks about when he says, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. And God holds all things together. And the writer of Hebrews says he sustains all things by his powerful word. In fact, God intervenes in three ways. He creates the universe and the natural laws that govern the universe. He sustains the universe through the natural laws by sustaining those. And he intervenes in the natural world on occasion through miracles to point us back to him. So he creates, he sustains, and he intervenes. Without orderly natural laws, you couldn't do science. This is why I say in the book, Stealing from God, that science requires God. Because without God, first of all, you wouldn't have a universe. Second of all, you wouldn't have orderly natural laws. Third of all, we wouldn't even be here to observe any of this and draw conclusions about it. This all requires philosophical presuppositions, or these are all, I should say, philosophical presuppositions that you have to know and use in order to do science. You can't prove orderly natural laws in order to do science. You need those in order to do science. Or I should say you can't prove orderly, orderly natural laws by science. You need them in order to do science. You can't prove the law of causality by science. You need those in order to do, you need that law in order to do science. You can't prove the laws of logic by science. You need them in order to do science. Same thing is true with morality. You can't put morality in a test tube. Science may tell you how to build a bomb, but science can't tell you whether or not you ought to use it. You could be Joseph Mengele doing science, the Nazi doctor who did horrific experiments on Jewish children. Or you could be a, a doctor like uh, Doctors Without Borders who go and bring their talents to foreign countries to help people in need. You see, morality is brought forth by the scientist. Science by itself is amoral. You can't prove 
morality by science. You need morality in order to do science rightly. All of these things are philosophical presuppositions that you need in order to do science. Many of these things are effects, effects from God. And that's why we can reason from these effects back to a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent, reasonable, orderly creator. All right, friends, if you want to learn more about this, by the way, go to Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu. If you put ses.edu slash Frank, you'll get 10% off your first course. And don't forget, I'll be in Bradenton, Florida and Sarasota, Florida this week. Check it out on our website, crossexamine.org. See you next week. God bless.